Hello, my name is Bob Pickles, and on behalf of Canon, welcome to Illuminate Connects, a Canon podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of our Illuminate Connects podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Quentin Taylor, Jessica Barker, and Brian Honan, all experts in the field of information security. Together, we'll explore how the big changes in both our personal and professional lives are affecting the way in which we perceive and treat risk. So, Quentin, I'd like to start today's conversation by asking you a couple of questions about the situation we find ourselves in and to try and understand how we deal with this? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is understand that this is not the same as it was before. It's very, very easy to get locked into that um, thoughts of, well, I used to work one or two days from home every so often. So this is exactly the same as it was then. And it's absolutely not. Remember that right now you've got uh, a lot more people at home. You may have your other half at home also working. You will have your children at home potentially as well. And, and you may have to be doing some homeschooling of your children while you're attempting to work. And your colleagues are in exactly the same situation. So whereas before it might have been a very, very quiet thing, you may have had your office and just been able to do one or two days at home. Now you've got everyone around in the house. You've also got the stresses and pressures of what's going on in the outside world at the moment. And this then also then translates into how an IT organization can react and respond to incidents. If they need to re-image laptops or, or fix things, can they do that at the moment? Can you get, if you have a, a ransomware attack, for example, could they get 50, 100, 200 people all coming to the office to hand their laptops in to get them re-imaged or to take other laptops? So I think we need to understand the fact that this is a totally different situation that now people are working at home, not through choice, but because they've been forced to work at home. And they're working at home in sometimes less than ideal situations with other pressures and other things going on in the background. You mentioned there that this is a totally new situation from a personal business and an IT point of view. So how do companies assess risk in this new world? Yeah, I think this whole new world has really forced a lot of companies to start to um, look very hard at their risk management processes. Um, when this first happened, there were some conversations around video conferencing software and authorized versus unauthorized video conferencing software. And there were some security problems with some of the video conferencing solutions. And there was a very good friend of mine on, on Twitter who actually said, let's be aware of the risk of your company not existing. And that was one of the things a lot of information security professionals were maybe not seeing. They were saying, yes, there is this vulnerability in this particular use case of this particular video conferencing software. But they were forgetting the fact that if the company was not able to communicate to each other, that was a far greater risk than the security risk. One thing we have to take and accept is that uh, we are going to live in a new normal. And I hate that phrase, but it does describe how we have to, as a business, adapt and adapt to uh, new ways of working. Uh, and as Quentin said, remote working, it's nothing new. We've been doing it for decades, but we haven't been, many businesses haven't been doing it on this scale, nor in the midst of a pandemic. So on the technical side, I think companies may have, in the first week or so of the lockdown, rushed to expand their uh, remote access solutions, rushed to engage in 
online video conferencing tools they may not have used before or cloud-based solutions they may not have used before. And that has kept the business going and helped the business survive. Now, as we're probably getting more used to working in this environment, now's the time that maybe the, the risk professionals, the security professionals should look back at those solutions and see, okay, what are the new threats? What's the new risk profile based on the fact that we're now working like this? And how do we make sure that in the rush to get things working, we haven't overlooked any security settings or any configurations that we, we, we should now put in place? Right. Okay. Yeah. And so what kind of um, attitude and culture helps us to manage these new security risks? I think an open culture and a can-do attitude and a culture of just accepting the fact that bad things are going to happen and that the response and reaction times from IT departments will be slower. Take, for example, uh, things like um, um, crypto ransomware or ransomware or any kind of issue where you may need to restore large amounts of data or large amounts of PCs. In the old days, before this, everyone on lockdown and everyone at home, you would simply bring everyone together. Some of the IT people could pull an all-nighter and you could re-image a certain number of machines per day and then hand them back to the user in the morning or, or the user could pick them up directly. So your ability and your capability to cope and your capability to be able to uh, react and respond in a positive way to these incidents is vastly reduced. And we just need to make sure that all the um, people in the company understand that IT suddenly can't just replace all laptops or reimage all laptops within a few days. Now it's going to take a little bit longer to get that done. That's interesting. Thanks, Quentin. And Jessica, I'd like to bring you in here, you know, just ask how you think this is affecting you and how do you see it affecting businesses in relation to security? Sure. One thing that um, clients have been speaking to me a lot about is how they address security awareness and security culture when their patterns of working, ways of working have obviously changed so much and, and changed so quickly. And this ties in really with Quentin's points about making sure there's an open culture, making sure that incident response is being considered, you know, and that you're having those conversations with people and also listening to your workforce and understanding actually what stresses they're under, what pressures they're under, how they're working and, and the impact it's having on them. A lot of clients were planning you know, face-to-face -face activities around awareness. They were planning big events um, and that's all obviously changed. So their understanding that, that we're going to be in this situation for a while and security awareness, security culture is, is arguably more important than ever at the moment. So these activities can't stop. They just have to change and still be as impactful and valuable as possible. Thanks, Jessica. That, that's fascinating. Um, Brian, can I bring you in and just see if there's anything you'd like to add to that conversation? Uh, as Quentin highlighted, you may not have a perfect office environment and people are anxious. They're worried about family and friends getting sick. They're looking for news. They're looking for information. They may be looking for tax relief or refunds or deliveries coming for, for shopping. And that's a perfect environment for criminals to, to target and use that fear, use that anxiety and try and send uh, scam emails or phishing emails to try either compromise the individuals on the financial details or maybe your company as well. So backing up what Jessica says, you need to look at awareness training and how to make people appreciate the, the environment they're working in and adjust their security awareness to, to, to suit that environment too. 
That's really interesting, everyone. And thanks, thanks for that. I, just to add a, a personal bit of experience, I, I was listening to a um, a podcast just the other day about the risks of um, password identification being made possible through video. Because what you do on your new videos, you wear your you might wear the football team that you support jersey, or you might have books on the shelves or music on the shelves behind you that give a clue to the sort of things that you're interested in that perhaps your passwords have been based around. And so you're making it easier for a password hacker to find information about you. More and more importantly, maybe your password reset questions. Right. What football team do you support? Which author is your favourite author? Yeah. Even your virtual background choice could be giving away this information as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes back to the point we made earlier on about, yes, the rush to get people working remotely. We've got them working remotely, but now how do you do that securely? And one of the key things we strongly recommend is implementing multi-factor authentication all over the place because passwords are the weakest link in our security chain. And uh, uh, have a multi-factor authentication in place where people have to use another means of authentication on their phone or a text message raises the bar that much higher. Not that it's not impossible to get around multi-factor authentication. You're making it more difficult. You're making things more secure. So that's a key takeaway from this conversation. I know it's a basic, um, but it's a really important um, reminder for everybody. And I, don't, I guess it doesn't matter. Would you all agree? It doesn't matter how often you reiterate that issue. It's so important. And the other thing we've done as well inside Canon is we have also produced internal videos telling our staff members how to set multi-factor authentication up on their personal um, Gmail, on their personal social media accounts, on their on everything else. Everything they can set MFA up and we've, we've got like a bit of a list going in our on an internal Yammer group, which goes through each of the individual services and how to set it up on that particular service. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're right. The protecting their personal security is, is something that I think organizations should be trying to do all the time, but especially at the moment with most people working from home. Absolutely. So we're really talking here about how risk management is changing and um, things have happened in recent years that we've, we've just been talking about. But specifically, um, the level of risk tolerance is always changing depending on the situation that businesses find themselves in. And so, Brian, I wonder if you've got anything else you want to add about understanding technology, people understanding technology um, and their perception of the risks. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite interesting how if you look at maybe cyber risk, it's often viewed uh, in a very negative way every time a security professional looks at risk we always look at the negative that you know there is a risk we're going to be hacked there is a risk we're going to lose data there is a risk of something negative happening there is the old phrase that uh, are saying that the security department is also known as the doctor no department in, in in many businesses and that you go to security and say can we do this and the answer is no and this pandemic is a, is a prime example of that. I'm sure many organizations had decided, let's roll out remote working for, for workers. And security would have said, no, can't do that because of security. Let's do uh, online video conferencing. No, you can't do that because of security. But the business risk overrides the, the cyber risk. So I think in many ways, this pandemic has silver lining to the cloud has been that it's a wake-up call for many IT security people to sort of say, look, move away from the technical risk and focusing on technical problems, focus on business and how you make the business survive and how you, and not only how to make the business survive, but how can security make the business thrive and even grow. And Jessica, perhaps I could ask you to come in there on, on the human side of it, you know, because behavior and what people do is, is just as important, right? Absolutely. And I think 
Many organizations have been working towards digital transformation for years and have probably wanted to make changes in terms of working from home, in terms of more virtual meetings that they have now made, you know, really quickly, really rapidly, uh, a scale that they probably were not doing before. And they've done that in the matter of really weeks. So many of us are using technology more than ever at the moment. You know, for those of us who are fortunate enough to be working from home, we're using technology to do our work more than ever. We're using technology to stay connected with our friends and our family, you know, for our educating our children, entertainment, virtual pub quizzes, you know, everything. Now we're, um, we've got technology front and centre for a lot of what we're doing. So for most of us, we're seeing the role of technology in our lives, in our businesses, in our homes is more pronounced and more visible than ever before. And so I think that raises some really interesting points in terms of how people are relating to security and potentially being more aware of security, more aware of privacy. If you look at the conversations around um, the contact tracing apps that we're having. Unfortunately, we've seen a huge amount of scams that are focusing on COVID-19 in one way or another, using the fact that many of us, of course, are anxious and wanting more information, wanting to know about masks, about cures, about the latest news, about financial implications. Um, and so we're using the criminals taking advantage of not just the fact that we're embracing and relying on technology so much, but also that there's a lot of emotions being stirred up at the moment. Interesting. And we'll come and talk in a little while, I think, about um, the crossover between personal and business activities. We're human beings and we and we do the same type of things in both places, but the requirements aren't always identical. But before we get to that, I just want to move move on and just talk about um, resilience. And we've talked there about a number of things, but um, Quentin, you know, building a security resilience plan presumably has many elements, but what are those key elements? And um, how, how would you shape those into the business that you work for? Well, I think the, the most important point is to accept that bad things will happen. The first place you need to start from is saying, I can't stop everything. And neither should I try and stop everything. And if the focus of my plan is to stop all bad things from happening, then it's a it's a bad plan. I need to start off with a plan of saying, bad stuff's going to happen. And when it does happen, what am I going to do? What is a knockout blow? What is a concern? What will we recover from? And have that, that sort of sliding scale where you say, look, every single issue is recoverable from in some way, shape or form. No matter how bad it looks, you can always get back. And I think that's the first point. And it's about trusting your employees and saying, I can't prevent all bad things happening to you. And neither should I. The only way I could do that would be to shut your computers down right now and you put them all in a, in a concrete block and forget about them. And then I'll make sure that nothing bad will happen to you on that computer. But I know I can't do that because you need to work. And when you work, you need to take a certain element of risk. And when we tell users, don't click on links that you're not expecting. But we know, and this is the horrible fact is, we know that sometimes they do need to click on links that they're not expecting. They may receive a document from a business partner who has said, hey, here's the here's the uh, uh, the contract. I know I said I was going to send it to you physically, but in today's COVID world, I've sent it electronically. Should they then stop receiving that and, and maybe they contact the business partner via another channel, say, you did send me that? But at the end of the day, they're going to have to make business decisions. They have to make risk-based decisions. And we need to accept that employees need to do that and give them the latitude to be able to make mistakes, but then help them and say, look, if something does go badly wrong, 
call us immediately, get hold of us immediately, and we can always fix it. Yeah, excellent. Um, and Brian, I wonder if you can uh, if you can build on. Have you got any examples of you know how that sort of thing could be done? Your real life stuff. Oh, absolutely, and it's a it's a personal example. I think uh, people need to have alternative plans for when things do go wrong. Uh, and the personal example I give is that last summer we're on a family holiday in uh, Aberdeen, and uh, we went into a coffee shop for lunch and we had a lovely lunch. And just as we were finishing our lunch, the power went out in the whole street. Uh, so we went, okay, well, great, we have our lunch, we're okay. <laughs> we finished eating, and, and I went up to uh, the counter and I said, uh, I'd like to pay for lunch, please. And I took out my credit card, and she goes, oh, there's no power. Uh, I can't use the till, and I can't use the credit card machine, so you can have your lunch for free. Now, there was me thinking, okay, the selfish me could just say thank you very much and take my family out of the shop and say great I've, I've just walked out with a free lunch but then the it cyber risk business continuity person in me went to hang on this is not right so i said to the girl have you got a phone and she says yes i said have you got a calculator on the phone she says yes was it take the menu you gave me take the calculator total up how much i'm due and i can pay you in cash instead and it was like there was a light bulb moment going, not, not with just her, but the others behind the counter. And they went, oh, wow, yes. So have your plans in place that if you get hit by a cyber attack or you have an issue, that just because the technology isn't available, you can roll back to some manual process or some other way to keep your business resilient. So the key thing is not to keep your technology or your infrastructure resilient. That is important. And if you can do that, fantastic but as quentin said something may happen you may get a knockout blow that you didn't expect now if that happens what can you do manually to keep things working jessica i'd like to bring you in here you know that you talked earlier about the open culture and the need to listen to the workforce um but of course the balance has to be between that and their ability to respond to the sort of situation brian's just described i know very low level but it, you know that situation could happen in a large corporate or in a government department you know how do our staff respond i, I wonder if you've got anything to add on that subject sure i think um brian and quentin you know have made some some excellent points about the importance of of business resilience you know the importance of making sure that um, you have structures in place. For example, you know, we mentioned MFA before. Um, Brian's touched upon the importance of, of making sure that you have structures in place so that an attack doesn't spread. So something like um, network segmentation, you know, making sure if there's ransomware or malware in one part of the network that it, it doesn't spread across. But we also need to think about what this means at the human level and at the cultural level. And so part of this is looking at what kind of culture you have um, both Brian and Quentin have mentioned, we, we often say, you know, don't click on links in emails. And obviously that's that's just not realistic advice. That's not um, advice that people can, can follow a lot of the time when they're doing their job. So instead of thinking so much about, you know, if you're doing a phishing simulation, looking at well, how many people clicked the link, instead of thinking about that, think about how many people reported it. And how quickly did they report it? Because it's that kind of reporting, that kind of incident response that is really important when it comes to resilience. One of the most important things with resilience is knowing when something has happened, when you need to investigate or react. And so making sure that people in the organization know how to react, how to respond, know when to, and feel comfortable. So 
rather than having a, a culture of fear, uncertainty and doubt, a, a culture where people are going to feel blamed if they've perhaps clicked on a link um, in a dodgy email, it's far more important to be looking at a culture of psychological safety where people know that they can and should report an incident and that they won't be singled out, um, they won't be made a scapegoat, that actually it's the right thing to do for them and for the organisation. I think beyond that, we can look at the role of senior executives and think about actually how we make sure senior executives are, are really plugged in and engaged when it comes to incident response and that they understand incident response isn't just about IT responding, it's about a business response. So things like tabletop exercises can be really helpful in incident response planning, in testing you know, how the comms work, um, in testing how the executives are going to are going to respond and make decisions and enable the organization to move forward in a resilient way responding to an incident. The security industry also tends to uh, focus on the bright new shiny threats and the super uh, hacking techniques that can, can happen and we, we look at oh my god I need to spend lots of money to protect from this fantastic new threat that only the NSA or uh, a nation state attacker could launch against my 2,000 person company here in the UK or Europe. No, that's not going to happen to you. you. You need to focus on awareness training with your staff. The, the basics of, of security, that's that's where we, we need to focus. And as, as Clinton said, you can't stop every bad threat out there. You can't stop everything. We need to take a, a risk-based approach and figure out where, where your efforts are best spent uh, and not just react to the latest uh, drama or news headline that, that, that that's happening out there. So there's something there about uh, not just reacting to what's happening today, but looking at how that affects what we do in the future as well. And looking about how likely it is, because it's very, very easy to focus in, as Brian said, on the latest advanced persistent threat, the latest vulnerability that has a logo and a website and a, and a theme song. Is that actually behind most of the attacks? Or is it, as Brian said, lack of multi-factor authentication? lack of uh, managing the website correctly are they what's behind most of the attack lack of patching because when people talk about advanced persistent threats it only needs to be advanced enough it's just basically that what we tend to do in the infosec industry is we focus in on the the really really big scary headline grabbing attacks and we forget the boring mundane which is how 99 percent of the attacks actually occur i want to move on now and just move to a subject which we've covered in in some to some extent, as we've gone through, which is the culture and people element of resilience and risk. And um, Jessica, I wonder if I can come to you first. In addition to all the stuff we've talked around culture and um, no blame and, and all of those sort of things, is there anything else you'd like to add in here? Sure. I think one thing we haven't spoken about in terms of culture, in terms of resilience, is the importance of diversity. And the importance of making sure that actually in our teams, in our security teams, in our business, it's really important to make sure we have um, diversity, that we have inclusion, to make sure that we can catch more eventualities and think about problems from different angles. Um, and part of this is about looking at technology and how technology is being used, how it could be abused, what the user experience is like. 
And I can I can draw a bit of an example if we look at Zoom over the last few months. At the end of 2019, Zoom had 10 million daily participants. And in April, just a few months later, giving everything that was happening, they reported over 300 million daily participants. And we all know that there were security and privacy issues coming to light, partly because so many more people were using Zoom and partly because it was being used in a way that actually the company hadn't really predicted that they hadn't seen coming. So it's brought up security and privacy issues that they maybe didn't expect, as well as more scrutiny. And so this really shows that actually, if you are making technology, if you are, you know, delivering a a service or a product, that looking at how it's not just being used from your perspective, but how it could be used is really fundamental to making sure that you have the resilience in place to make sure that no matter what happens in the surrounding landscape, you have security and privacy at the heart. You know, I can speak personally, you know, today I'm on a number of calls. Most of them are Teams because that's our chosen platform at Canon. But um, this evening on a different device, I'll be attending two Zoom calls and um, moving between the two, my personal and my business life. Uh, the tools are the same and many businesses and organizations, even public sector organizations are using Zoom extensively despite the um, the risk. So there is this thing about, um, you know, crossover. I think it, it comes back to usability. Um, yeah. People have found with Zoom that it's very usable. It's very easy for um, people to get their friends, their family, parents, grandparents, kids, whoever, accessing Zoom and using it. It's, it's not got very many, many barriers to entry. And so it goes back to our conversation at the start that actually usability often trumps security. Um, And we as security professionals, the security industry, we need to recognize that and make sure that actually we aren't just saying no to people, but we're saying, well, how how can we do that? How can we make it more secure? How can we make it so that you can still do this thing, but be as protected as possible? We should probably also add in that Zoom has improved their security uh, dramatically since all of the, um, the issues. And some of the issues were not specifically in Zoom itself, but in the way that users were using Zoom and the way that Zoom was asking users or allowing users to use their their products. But also, yeah, I completely agree. I think their response has been fantastic. You know, getting um, security professionals like Katie Missouri um, and Alex Stamos um, involved, having weekly webinars with the CEO to answer security questions. You know, they and they've basically said the next three months they're focusing on security and privacy as an absolute priority. Um, and we can't really ask for more than that, I don't think. But I think you, you hit on a very good point there, Jessica, about security. It's the usability. Too often security is a barrier to people using systems or devices so great thing about zoom like a they became popular because they were easy to use b they offered their product for free so many companies used it to get people working because it's free and can't be wrong with that Uh, but it comes back to building security into products it needs to be designed from the very very beginning and it takes a lot of time if we look at the smartphones we have today it's a good example of how good user experience makes for good security. 10, 15 years ago, if you, if, if Canon or any other company went out to all its staff and said, we are now going to use biometrics for you to access your data on your device, there will probably be uproar. People would say, no way, I'm never going near anything. Likewise, if you say we're going to encrypt all your devices to keep information secure, IT will probably go, no way, it's too difficult, encryption is too 
cumbersome, it's too too messy. But now if you look at you know smartphones or tablets, etc., we're using biometrics to, to access them and people don't have a major issue with that. It's very transparent to the users. They come default being uh, encrypted. Again, transparent to the user and the user experience is much better. By default, they now have much more secure personal devices than many probably organizations have from uh, their, their corporate devices. So the usability and the ability for people to be able to use security in a, a very safe and intuitive way is also key to making our lives, our infrastructure, and our companies much more secure as well. Very, very few consumers, and I read that as pretty much zero consumers, will ever buy a product because it is more secure than product next to it. They'll buy it based on price, they'll buy it based on usability, they'll buy it based on color, they'll buy it based on functionality, but they won't buy on security. They will make a negative buying choice based on security, but they'll not make a positive buying choice based on security, which means that security isn't really a positive value driver, but it can be a negative value driver. And you also have the thing when it comes to designing a product, you can have it fast, you can have it usable, and you can have secure pick two. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's great. Uh, and, and thank you, everybody, for those uh, those contributions. A, a really interesting conversation. I, I think, so Brian, in addition to all that we've discussed, I wonder if we could just spend a minute um, and hear what advice you've got for smaller businesses, smaller, medium-sized businesses who maybe don't have an IT services professional working in their organization and are dependent on more widely available advice and guidance. Yeah, actually, it's a great question because we often forget about the uh, small and medium-sized businesses and they face the same threats and risks and challenges that large enterprises do, but with much smaller budgets and much less resources. And as you, you highlighted there, they might even have an IT professional on staff to, to help them deal with this. So I, I think fundamentally what businesses need to do is is identify what data they have and what, what's, what's, what's critical to their business and then figure out how to uh, protect it. Now, there are simple steps that can be taken. You can make sure you've got up-to-date antivirus software, that you engage with staff to to make them aware of the responsibilities with with security. Pretty much, if you like, similar to what large enterprises do. But to help many businesses, uh, there are resources available for free. So I'd point people to the UK National Cyber Security Centre. That's ncsc.gov.uk. And they have a guide called 10 Steps to Cybersecurity, which uh, businesses can download for free. And it gives them a step-by-step walkthrough as to how to make their data secure. Now, being Irish, I also have to highlight that the Irish National Cybersecurity uh, Centre has also published uh, a guide, which has actually got 12 steps. But this particular guide is also aimed specifically at the SME sector, and it gives 12 steps as to how you can ensure your data is secure. Uh, And then to augment that as well, the European Union Agency for Cybersecurity, ENISA, uh, which can be found at enisa.eu, E-N-I-S-A dot E-U, has a resource and a page dedicated to COVID-19 and a whole lot of information there about uh, how to keep systems secure, how to select uh, uh, secure uh, online communication tools, how to work safely remotely, and all the resources are for free. And then I suppose finally, we still, no matter where we're working as businesses, we still are subjected to the same regulations as we would be prior to the pandemic. So we still have to make sure we handle and process and store uh, personal data 
under GDPR and data protection uh, regulations. So the ICO does have guides. The Information Commissioner's Office has a specific page on giving business advice on how to protect and what they need to keep in mind when uh, protecting personal data. And yes, I will give a plug to the Irish Data Protection Commission's uh, website as well, uh, dataprotection.ie. Uh, they also have some excellent guides and all for free that small businesses and indeed large enterprises can refer to as to how to make sure that they can protect personal data. We're coming to the towards the end of uh, podcast now, and I uh, just thought it would be useful to ask each of you if you could, um, in addition to the things that we've already talked about, what sort of business takeaways, um, maybe maybe one each, if I could ask you to be that prioritised, um, and the sort of things that um, we could be uh, taking away from this conversation as things to do. Perhaps I can start with you, Brian. I think constantly reviewing your risk profile and adapting that to the business environment you're working in. So looking at what's out there, uh, looking at what you're trying to protect, putting the appropriate controls in place, whether that's awareness training, multi-factor authentication, et cetera. Having a, a solid and regular risk management exercise is key to keeping yourself secure. Thank you. And, and Jessica? Sure. I um, would like to mention the importance of listening. Ultimately, we are there to help, we're there to support, we're there to enable the rest of the business. And so a fundamental part of doing that and of making sure that we have a sort of positive and resilient culture in place is making sure that we listen and probably listen more than we talk to other areas of the business, particularly, I think, areas of the business where there is some tension, you know, between um, what they're doing and what we in security are trying to do. You know, the teams that are maybe focused on innovation, um, the developers, making sure we understand actually their priorities, their ways of working, and think about how we can support them and support them to be more secure without getting in the way and being a blocker. Really good. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and Quentin, finally, from you. I would say get the basics right um, and don't beat yourself up because getting the basics right at scale is really, really, really hard. But if you can get all of that lot done and you can get the basics done at scale, you'll be so much further ahead and it'll fix an awful lot of other problems. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, Quentin, Brian and Jessica, that's an absolutely brilliant set of takeaways at the end of our podcast. Um, Really enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you very much indeed for your time and look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you. Thank you.